As I mentioned at the outset, very warm welcome to you. Uh, if you've arrived since we began, I hope you enjoy, you've enjoyed uh, your time joining with us, worshipping God together. And it now comes to the part of the meeting where we're going to, uh, to hear Adrian, who's come from uh, Wimbledon, uh, where, where he's part of Everyday Church. And he's visited us a few times before, uh, always brings something uh, winsome and helpful and clear to help us think, what do I think? Now, we've just heard there that question, who do you say I am, Jesus said. Well, we're going to look at a question today, and maybe for, for us, that's to help us consider that question too. We're going to be considering, uh, can the Bible be trusted? If that's the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself, can we trust that the Bible is reliable in order to help us see who is uh, Jesus? So without further ado, let's really w- give a very warm welcome to Adrian uh, right now. Thank you, Dan. Thanks very much. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's great to be with you. And uh, I thought, uh, just for a bit of fun, just for a bit of a laugh uh, at the beginning, uh, for those of you who I don't know, maybe we could get to know each other a bit better. And I thought maybe we could try and get to know each other better if I just showed you a few photos from my life. Would that be okay? This is just a bit of fun. Is that all right? Yeah, okay. So first of all, first photo, ladies and gentlemen, me as a baby. You can see here, folks, I was actually born with a receding hairline. You can also see, if you look very carefully, that I was born with a squint, which means that wherever you are seated in this room, at least one of my eyes is looking at you. Next photo, folks, me, age seven. Thank you for that, R. Um, Now, as you can see, I've really got a number of problems here. In fact, we could spend the whole of this morning just going through my problems one by one. But just to choose one of my problems, you can see that what's happened here is my mum has got up the old kitchen scissors. And she's tried to cut my fringe straight, but she's gone ever so slightly uphill. Can you see that? Next photo, me in a band. Oh, yes. Yes, when I was a student, I too was in a band. And you can see that Jim standing on one side of me. Jim has a bit of a pout. Can you see his lips pouting? Yes? That's because Jim's been in a band before. But Roddy and me, however, we haven't been in a band before, so you know, we're just trying to look cool, you know, like you do. Uh, Next photo, uh, me on my stag day. And and just to explain it, if you're not from this country, here in England, if you are a man and you want to get married, you first have to dress up as an ostrich jockey. (laughs) That's just the way that it is. Anyway, now um, I'm married to my wonderful wife, Julia, and we have these four lovely daughters. Another R. Well, thank you very much. Um... So I'm now 46 years into my journey through life. And probably, probably most of us here would agree that during the course of a typical 70, 80, 90-year life, there usually comes a point, a moment. Now, this moment may only last for five minutes, but at least for those five minutes, you and I ask this question. Am I alive for a reason? I mean, I can see, talk, think, 
feel, I can have fun, but is there any purpose to life? For at least those five minutes, we ask, why am I here? And for that matter, why is anything here? I mean, how come there is something rather than nothing? Why did anything begin to exist? Why is there a universe with me living in it? Why is there a planet Earth with me living on it? You know, I showed you a few photos from my life. Well, you could take your phone right now and you could show me a few photos from yours. But once we've added them together, does it mean anything? I mean, do our lives count for anything in the greater scheme of things? The Bible's answer is yes. Yes, because you're supposed to be here. You are not an accident. You're worth something. The Bible says there really is a loving Father God who always planned that one day you, specifically you, would exist. And that this loving God has deliberately brought you into existence in the hope of having the most wonderful love relationship with you. This is a relationship that is good for this life. But what's unique about this relationship is that it goes on into the next, into a place where every day is better than the one before. This is a place where you'll never be bored. A place where you'll be filled and thrilled to the max. Now, that's quite a claim. But can it be trusted? Personally, I had my doubts. Well, for a whole load of reasons. Um, I mean, one reason was I didn't go to church. Uh, in fact, I didn't know anyone my age who went to church. And uh, I guess I'm a naturally skeptical person. I wasn't looking for God. I didn't want to believe a lot of nonsense. I did a history degree at university, and then I became a reporter on the Times newspaper in London, and then I started working as a reporter and a presenter for the BBC. And at the BBC, I was trained to be cynical. I was trained to doubt and disbelieve everything and everyone. So when I first came across a church like City Church, it seemed to me anyway that the whole thing, the whole of Christianity, either stood or fell on the New Testament's claim that Jesus really was the unique Son of God who rose from the dead. So are there any good reasons why a skeptical person would come to trust the Bible? Well, let's start by asking is what the New Testament says about Jesus supported by evidence outside the Bible? I mean, were there any non-Christians alive at the time in ancient history who can tell us anything about the historical Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, for example, there's a first century Jewish historian called Josephus, and he makes two important references to Jesus that survive intact and unaltered in an Arabic version. There's also the main Roman historian of this period, Tacitus. There's Pliny the Younger. He was the Roman governor of Bithynia in northwest Turkey. There's a satirist called Lucian of Samosata. And there's also the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. Now, 
all of these are non-Christian, in fact anti-Christian early sources which give us information about the historical Jesus. Now there are several other ancient non-Christian sources, but just for the sake of time, let's just pull together the five that I've at least mentioned and let's ask this question. What would we know about Jesus from the ancient world if we totally ignored the Bible? Well, firstly, both Josephus and Lucian say that Jesus was regarded as wise. Second, Pliny, the Talmud, and Lucian imply that Jesus was a powerful and honored teacher. Third, the Talmud indicates that Jesus performed miraculous feats, but that he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fourth, Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, and Lucian all mention that Jesus was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus say this happened under Pontius Pilate, and the Talmud says it happened on the eve of the Passover, which again is exactly as the New Testament describes. Fifthly, Josephus has reports of Jesus' resurrection. Sixthly, he says that Jesus' followers believed that he was the Christ or the Messiah. And finally, both Pliny and Lucian indicate that Christians worship Jesus as God. So, uh, this is a promising start. It turns out, actually, there is unbiased support for the Bible's version of events from early non-Christian, in fact, here from anti-Christian early sources. But how could these ancient non-Christian documents help me into a relationship with God? Well, just by way of comparison, I thought... Maybe i just tell you the hilarious true story of how I began a relationship with Julia, who is now my wife, 18 years ago. This would just be a little bit of a, a, bit, a bit of fun. Um, so, folks, the background to this story is that I really liked Julia. But I was absolutely convinced that she would not like me for one very good reason. I thought that she was too good-looking for me. Thank you for that R. This was a fact, a fact that was confirmed to me by all of my friends. But on one occasion, there's about 20 of us friends in the room, and I'm sitting on a sofa next to Julia, and I noticed that her knee was touching mine. But... At the time, I dismissed this as purely accidental knee contact, the sort of accidental knee contact that presumably can happen when a girl finds herself sitting next to some bloke who she doesn't fancy at all. So I thought, any second now, Julia will realize that her knee is touching mine, and she will withdraw her knee. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say that five seconds passed, And no such knee withdrawal took place. But at the time I thought, well, maybe maybe the sofa is so small that she's been squashed, forced into sustained knee contact against her will. But I looked around and the sofa was plenty big enough. So I thought, well, maybe she's got one of those medical conditions. You know, where you can't feel things. You know, maybe she's had a nerve cut in her right knee. Maybe she has paralysis of the right knee. 
But no, Judea showed none of the telltale signs of right knee paralysis. So I decided if her knee was still touching mine in a further 10 seconds time, I was going to take that as official confirmation that she was interested in me. 10 seconds later, her knee was still touching mine. And I realized that I had received a signal. (laughs) Even though I am a bloke, I was able to work this out. And so it was, and here, just to speed up the story and speed up the sermon, uh, I'm now going to skip, I'm going to skip a whole year of the story at this point. So a whole year later, I was ready to ask Julia to marry me, okay? A whole year later. And so it was that one night, I hid in the bushes, planning my first burglary. See, my plan was to break into Julia's parents' house and steal her passport, And then I thought, what I'll do is I'll whisk her away to Paris, because I'm thinking, if I can up the romance level high enough and then propose marriage in Paris, then when I ask her, she might say yes in a kind of disorientated daze, (laughs) brought on by the excitement of the Eurostar. So I broke into her parents' house, I stole her passport, and in Paris, in a restaurant called Le Table d'Hôte du Palais Royal, which, yeah, sent me back a bit, um... I got down on one knee with a very expensive ring and said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. Now, picture the scene. There I am. I'm in this restaurant in Paris. I'm kneeling down and I mean, all these people are watching. And, and as I'm holding this expensive ring, the obvious question I'm going to ask Julia is, will you marry me? But for many of us, as we come to this subject, the obvious question is, well, how do you know the Bible's true? I mean, how do you know the New Testament is true? Isn't the New Testament really just the product of exaggerated stories and Chinese whispers? I mean, maybe Jesus' followers got a bit carried away with excitement in that period after his alleged resurrection, but before the New Testament documents first got written down. After all, wasn't it hundreds of years later that these stories about Jesus eventually did get written down. Well, Jesus died in around 33 AD. And we've got in a document that today we call 1 Corinthians an account of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And we can date this document back to within a few months of the actual event. So, firstly, writing in 55 AD, the author... The Apostle Paul writes these words, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And just to explain that in the original Greek, that phrase turns out to be crucial. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 
Now, this passage presents several problems for anyone suggesting that the resurrection appearances are more legendary than they are historical. First of all, writing 22 years after the resurrection, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they can test whether this resurrection has any basis in fact or not because the majority of the 500 or so witnesses are still alive and these people are willing to be interviewed. And then, for a number of technical reasons to do with the Greek and Aramaic words that are in this passage, this passage is thought to contain a much earlier creedal statement. And it's likely that Paul picked up this list of the resurrection appearances of Jesus shortly after his own conversion in Damascus, or later when he takes a trip to Jerusalem and he meets with two key leaders of the early Christian church. One of these guys is Peter, the other is called James. This is a trip he takes in around 35 AD, and he writes about this trip in one of his other letters uh, called Galatians in chapter 1 verse 18 to 19. Now here is the key point. It turns out there is a wide agreement amongst scholars from all sorts of different persuasions, all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different viewpoints. There's a wide agreement that this list, the list of resurrection appearances of Jesus that we've just seen on the screen, this list was already well established before Paul picked it up sometime around 35 AD. This list not only existed somewhere in Jerusalem, but it had been around for a while. It was a well-established tradition when Paul collected it sometime around 35 AD. This shows that the resurrection appearances are as old as Christianity itself. It shows the resurrection appearances they're not a much later legendary development. So we have got a very early report of Jesus' resurrection. But if you're looking for the first full-length biography of Jesus, then conservative scholars argue that the earliest gospel, the first to be written, Mark, was completed sometime around 60 AD, and Luke shortly afterwards, probably 61 AD. So let's just give some kind of perspective. The standard dating of the Gospels in so-called liberal circles would be Mark in the 70s AD, Matthew and Luke in the 80s AD, and John in the 90s. These dates, if you like, are at one end of the spectrum. But conservative scholars have recently presented powerful reasons for thinking that Mark's Gospel was written sometime around 60 AD. So, If Jesus died in 33 AD, then on that basis, our sum would be 60 minus 33. We would have a time gap of 27 years. Question, isn't 27 years a very long time gap? Well, not if it's an eyewitness account. So when I was a journalist, when I was working for national newspapers in central London, we were always waiting for politicians to publish his or her diaries. And sometimes a politician would publish his or her diaries fully 30 years after they left power. 
But when they did publish their diaries, even if it was 30 years later, we would still take their eyewitness account of what really happened as more authoritative, more reliable than the newspaper reports that came out at the time. Why? Because these people were the closest to the events that they describe. Now, just in terms of being an eyewitness, I wonder if I could just tell you a funny story about something that happened to me in West London, where I live, on the tube, on the district line. So, one time I'm on the train, and um, at Earl's Court, on the district line, the driver changes over. So you have this slightly odd two-minute wait, uh, the carriage is usually quite full, uh, the doors are open, people are walking around on the platform, nothing's really happening, and you wait for two minutes, the driver's changing over. And so I'm sitting there, carriage is quite full, but I'm just aware, out the corner of my eye, I can see that there's this woman... And she's standing on the very edge of the platform and she's looking into the train and she's staring at me in a kind of a manic, piercing kind of a way. And I'm trying not to look at her, I'm just sitting there. And after about two minutes of this manic staring, this woman shouts at me quite loudly. She shouts, Lars! Lars! Lars, it's me, Jennifer! I can't believe I've seen you again, Lars. How are you, Lars? I can't believe I've seen you again after all this time. And I look around the carriage, and everyone is looking at me. And so I stand up and I say, Hi! (laughs) I'm going to be completely honest and say that right now, I don't immediately remember you, uh, Jennifer, but I'm sure, hey, I'm sure as we carry on talking any minute now, it'll all come flooding back. She said, what? You don't remember me? You don't remember me, Lars, after all we've gone through? And I said, uh, I'm sure that I will remember as we carry on talking. I'm sure that any minute now I'll remember. She said, oh no, she said, it's too late now. She said, I'm offended. I'm offended. And I said, well, it it might be that the reason why I don't remember you is because my name is not Lars. And she looked me up and down and she said, oh, she said, I'm so embarrassed. And then her friend put her arm around her and they both walked off up the platform, at which point everyone in the carriage burst out laughing. (laughs) Now, I'm telling you that story as an eyewitness. But what if at that moment, if everyone in the carriage was given a piece of paper and a pen, And we all wrote down what just happened. Our account of what just happened. The whole conversation, everyone was listening in, everything. And then once we'd all written it down, we put them all together. And then we handed them to Dan, our host here. Now what Dan would be getting would be a collection of eyewitness accounts. And folks, the important thing about the New Testament is that much of it is the work of eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were two of Jesus' twelve disciples. Peter's account is written by Mark, who was Peter's traveling companion. But Mark himself, he's an actor in the New Testament story. We can follow Mark. We can see him in the narrative. Meanwhile, Luke traveled with Paul. Paul was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And Paul writes uh, nearly half of the New Testament documents. But many people are totally unaware of this. Many people think that the New Testament is the product of Chinese whispers. 
Professor A.N. Sherwin-White of St. John's College, Oxford University, studied this question as a Roman historian. And he concluded that it takes two full or complete generations for the core truth of accurate historical information to become corrupted by legendary development. So, according to Dr. Sherwin-White, the Gospels are written too early, before Chinese whispers could have become a factor. Too early for real, accurate, original historical information about the real Jesus to have become corrupted. The Gospels are written too early. But hang on, that just prompts another good question. Look, even if I did accept that those eyewitnesses didn't exaggerate when they wrote down what they wrote down, how do we know that the New Testament that we can buy in Waterstones or W.H. Smith's or the New Testament we have today, how do we know that this is an accurate copy of what those guys originally wrote back in the first century? I mean, this is only a copy, isn't it? The originals, the original parchments, the original papyri, they've disintegrated. So for all we know, during that copying process, all sorts of errors could have crept in. What we're asking here is how can we be sure the New Testament is free from mistakes, especially as the autographs, so-called, have disintegrated? Now the answer is that we can be sure through the science of textual criticism. In fact, we can be absolutely sure that we have got an accurate copy of the original. Here is why. This table gives us the chance to compare the New Testament to other ancient books which today are considered trustworthy. Now, we don't have the originals of any of the six works listed here on the extreme left-hand column. But before these originals disappeared, they were copied. So what historians do is they look at the time gap between when the original was written. So, for example, for Tacitus, the original was written in around 100 A.D., And then the earliest surviving copy, well, the oldest surviving copy of Tacitus was created in 1100 AD, giving us a time gap of 1000 years. Now, the shorter the time gap between when the original document was written and the earliest surviving copy, the more sure historians can be that we've got an accurate copy of what was originally written. Well, as you can see, the New Testament really does rather well by comparison. Its various books were written between 49 and 95 AD. And the earliest bit of the New Testament anywhere in the entire world is very close to where we are right now. It's in Manchester. It's in the John Rylands Library, and it's a part of John's Gospel, and it's dated 130 AD. That is the latest. I mean, some people think it's earlier, but nobody's suggesting it. Um, but it's later than that. Now, 130 AD is only 40 years after John wrote his gospel. Now, to you and me, those 40 years might seem like, 40 years seems like a long time, but it's like a photocopy when you compare it to the gap for these other documents, which could be a gap of anything up to a thousand years. So the New Testament really does very well by comparison. And folks, that, if you like, is the first part or the first leg. The argument for the reliable transmission of the scriptures walks on two legs, and that's the first leg. And for the second leg of the argument, I'd now like to attempt a humorous illustration. So, just 
just bear with me for a second. Um, imagine, if you would, for a moment, that you have a relative called Aunt Sally. And your Aunt Sally has discovered the secret of perpetual youth. Your Aunt Sally makes chocolate brownies to a recipe that actually causes the people who eat her brownies to look younger. Wow! As you can imagine, Aunt Sally's recipe for her chocolate brownies is a closely guarded secret. But your Aunt Sally doesn't have an iPad. Your Aunt Sally doesn't have a laptop. Your Aunt Sally doesn't own a printer. What your Aunt Sally does is she writes down her recipe on a piece of paper with a pen... And then she writes down three copies of her original recipe and she gives one of of these copies, she gives one to her three best friends. So there are a total of four copies of Aunt Sally's recipe for her brownies in existence in the entire world. Everything is going well until one fateful day. Aunt Sally's dog eats her original recipe. In a panic, Aunt Sally gathers her three best friends and she appeals to them for help. And each of her three best friends make a terrible admission. They say, well, we've suffered similar mishaps to you, Sally. One of her friends says, oh, Sally, look, I'm, I'm sorry, look, I actually lost your recipe during a house move four years ago. A second says that she inexplicably threw the recipe away. A third says that her copy of the recipe was destroyed in a house fire. Aunt Sally slumps down on her knees and she cries out to her friends, Is there anything you can do to help me? And at this point, each of her three friends make a dramatic confession. They say, Sally, we never really knew how to tell you this before, but before we lost our copy of your recipe, Sally, each of the three of us, we all wrote it down ten times, and we gave one copy of your recipe to each of our ten best friends. Rather than Sally being cross and angry about this, Sally punches the air. Sally jumps for joy, rejoicing in the news that 30, 30 copies of her recipe still exist. And so comes the great day when Aunt Sally gathers these 30 people round to her house and each person arrives holding their copy of the recipe wherein is hidden the secret of perpetual youth. Aunt Sally takes the 30 copies of her recipe and she lays them down on her living room carpet in symmetrical rows. Aunt Sally gets on her knees and she studies the 30 copies. And Aunt Sally discovers that 27 of the 30 copies are identical. Word for word identical. But documents 14 and 21 have sentences in them that none of the other 29 documents have. And those sentences are not identical because document 14 has the insertion, then let the brownies stand to cool. Whereas document 21 just has the command, let stand. Meanwhile, document 27 has a comma and the word and that none of the other 29 documents have. So here is the crucial question. Do you think that Aunt Sally can accurately reconstruct the original text of her recipe from the 30 copies? Yes. Yes, yes, 
because 27 of the 30 are identical, word for word identical. The textual variants in documents 14, 21, and 27 are obviously later insertions that did not appear in the original. And that, in a very simplified form, is the situation that we have with the New Testament. Looking at the extreme right-hand column, the greater the number of identical surviving copies that we have, the more sure we can be that we have got an accurate copy of what was originally written. For the New Testament, we have a total of 5,800 Greek manuscripts. And these are found all over the ancient world. And it is the similarity between them, and for that matter, the similarity between them and the 10,000 Latin manuscripts and an additional 9,300 in Ethiopic Slavic and Armenian that means that when you put these thousands of copies together in the same place we can accurately reconstruct the text of the original New Testament from all the copies so if you have stacks of ancient copies found all over the world all saying the same thing then there cannot have been much exaggeration going on because if there had been exaggeration going on then all of the copies would all be saying different things if all the copies are saying the same thing, whoever has been doing the copying must have been copying very accurately. With so many early copies from so many places all saying the same thing, we can be sure that the New Testament that we have in our hands today is an accurate copy of what was originally written. Summing up, the late Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was an expert on Greek papyri, and a former director of the British Museum, he concluded that the last doubt has now been removed. He's saying that we now know that the New Testament that we have in our hands today is what the New Testament authors originally wrote. So it seems that actually there wasn't corruption of original, accurate, early information about the real historical Jesus either before those New Testament documents first got written down, nor has there been corruption of that information since, as those eyewitness accounts were subsequently copied. Okay? So, somebody says, well, thanks, Adrian, for your talk, but do you know what? To be honest, uh, the Bible says that miracles have happened, and I, I think miracles are nonsense. Well, fair enough. I mean, I'm, I'm like you. I'm a naturally skeptical person. So why don't we deliberately take the most spectacular and probably the most important miracle in the entire Bible, the resurrection of Christ? Because if this event did happen, the resurrection would demonstrate Jesus' authority, his divinity, his supremacy, because Jesus rather outlandishly claimed that he would demonstrate that he was who he claimed to be by rising from the dead three days after he died. A fairly bold claim, I'm sure you'd agree. Now, Dr. Gary Habermas has made a detailed study of every book and every article that credentialed scholars have published on the resurrection since 1975. And he and his colleague, Dr. Michael Lycona, then selected only those documents, or only those facts, I should say, they collected only those facts that the vast majority of scholars, both Christian and non-Christian, accept as historical fact. They chose to work 
only with the facts that the overwhelming majority of non-Christian scholars and Christian scholars consider to be reliable. So here are four of the minimal facts. These, remember, are facts that are accepted by scholars who oppose the resurrection. Here are the four facts. Number one, that Jesus was crucified and that he died as a result. Number two, that three days after his execution, Jesus' tomb was empty. Thirdly, that Jesus' disciples really did believe that he rose and that he had appeared to them. And then fourthly, the conversion of this anti-Christian persecutor of the Christian church, a man called Saul of Tarsus. Now, let's imagine that you were right now uh, on a jury. You're a member of a jury at a criminal trial. And you've just been sent out into the deliberation room. You've got to consider your verdict. You've got to come back into the courtroom with a verdict. Right now, as you're sitting in the room with your 11 colleagues, at this moment, you would be looking for a verdict that fits all the facts. You'd be looking for a verdict that doesn't strain or minimize the known facts. You would be looking for a verdict that best fits the facts that aren't in dispute. Folks, the reason why I became convinced that Jesus must have risen from the dead is because the resurrection explanation of these facts outdistances all the other competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection explanation is the only explanatory theory that can accommodate all the known facts. And any alternative explanation also has to account for the explosive growth of Christianity. Because we know that Christianity burst into life with thousands of Jews in Jerusalem suddenly worshipping a carpenter. But no historian would ever have predicted this because first century Jews were strict monotheists. The last thing first century Jews wanted to do was to worship a human being. They thought that was idolatry. They thought it was appalling. They thought it was disgusting. And yet thousands of them suddenly committed idolatry and started to worship a carpenter as God. I mean, can I ask you, what would it take you to do something tomorrow on Monday morning that right now, as you're sitting here, you think that thing is disgusting, appalling, and horrific, and yet tomorrow you're going to do it? I mean, what would it take? Well, that's what worshipping a man was to a first century Jew. That was idolatry, and that is what thousands of them suddenly did. You see, folks, strictly speaking, Christianity should not exist. Christianity should have been instantly disproved by both the Jews and the Romans who had the dead body of Jesus in a sealed tomb guarded by soldiers. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth had been such a blasphemous threat to the Jews and he'd been such a political threat to the Romans that these two groups had conspired together to get Jesus killed. The whole point of killing him was to snuff out Jesus and his embryonic movement. The last thing these people wanted was Jesus' disciples persuading people that their hero had risen from the dead. If the Jews or the Romans had had the dead body of Jesus, 
Then as soon as the first Christians started touring Jerusalem, punching the air, saying, Christ is risen, Jesus is alive. If they'd had the body, the Jews or the Romans would have put Jesus' dead body on a cart and wheeled it behind the Christians saying, no, no, he's not alive. Look, look, come and touch, see for yourself that he's dead. He's not alive, he's dead. Jesus was, after all, a celebrity. Finally, let me put it to you humorously. Imagine that you lived on the moon in 33 AD and you look down on the Mediterranean world and you have to bet your life on either the message of 12 fishermen who worship a crucified carpenter, that message of the 12 fishermen, that message taking over the entire Roman Empire within the space of 300 years, or alternatively, you could bet on the might of the Roman Empire crushing the message of the 12 fishermen within a generation. Now, who would your money be on? You bet on the Romans. You bet on the Romans crushing the message of the fishermen within a generation. And yet today, we name our children, Peter, Andrew, Matthew, Thomas, James, and John, and we name our dogs, Caesar and Nero. Let me speak to you very personally as I close. Personally, when I came to this subject as a skeptic, it seemed reasonable to me that if God has gone to all the trouble to create the universe, time, space, matter, and energy out of nothing, and then God's gone to all the trouble to fine-tune the universe so that, against all the odds, it is possible for advanced organic life to exist on the surface of our planet, it seemed to me that if God's gone to all that trouble... It seemed at least reasonable that this God would want to communicate with his creatures at some point. Folks, all the Bible is saying is that that is what was happening through this person, Jesus of Nazareth. That that was God communicating with us. And probably the most famous verse in the Bible, the one that's taken to kind of sum up the whole message of the 66 books in one sentence, was first explained to me When I was a skeptic like this, somebody said to me, let's imagine that God was somewhere up here, for the sake of the analogy, let's imagine God's up in the sky somewhere, all right? And let's imagine that you and I are down here and we are made for a relationship with God and there's nothing in the way. But, problem is this book. This book is actually my 1997 diary. So I'm one of these people that kept a record of everything, you know, wrote something every day, you know, what I thought of other people. Nobody's ever read this, by the way. This is the real me in here. And so I kind of... Now, if you you came up and read this, you would be a little bit disappointed because I'm afraid that this shows what I'm really like. This is me, warts and all. And it's not pretty. I mean, it's not nice. There's some very nasty things in here. In fact, if you read this, you'd think, no, no, this is a problem. If heaven really is, as the Bible says, a perfect place... The book of Revelation says about heaven that nothing impure will ever enter it. Well, this book would count me out. I mean, just this one year, 1997, that would be a problem for me. I couldn't go to heaven when I die because I can't undo this stuff. I can't go back to 1997 and undo it all. I can't live that year again. Even if I tried, I couldn't live a perfect life. So I can't go to heaven when I die. I can't get through. And the Bible says this is true of all of us, that actually at some point all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short 
of the glory of God. And the Bible says the result of this is death. The wages of sin is death. So we're cut off from God. I'm facing eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. This is the bad news. But the good news is that imagine my left hand is Jesus of Nazareth. Here's a man who claimed to have never sinned and managed to get millions of people to, to believe that he'd never sinned. Jesus never had anything separating him from his father until when he was around 33 years old when all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe were placed upon him Jesus is cut off from his father but hey look over here at my right hand this is enough good news for you and me if we choose to believe it because look the barrier has been removed and so the great news of the Bible is this that God so loved you that he gave his only son so that if you believe in him, look, you won't perish. You can have eternal life. This is not an abstract intellectual question. This is not an odd academic pursuit. This is the most exciting and most relevant thing that any human being could ever hear, that there really is a God who loved you so much that he gave us only some for you so that if you believe in him, if you put your trust in him, you actually won't perish you will have eternal life. And that is an amazing offer. Maybe the band would just like to come and join me. Jesus said that you can know this God of love. Jesus said that you can experience his love personally. What an offer. And you can follow the evidence where it leads. And you can know exactly the sort of power and security that Jesus promised and you know what you won't have to commit intellectual suicide to get it for me folks finding out that there really is a loving God finding out that you can know him personally ladies and gentlemen that has been the most thrilling discovery of my entire life thank you so much for listening to me it's been great being with you God bless you I'll see you again next time thanks very much